2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, says the Lord, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was, it, was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, Oh, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O oh man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O oh man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel?
Thank you, Russ. Good morning. Well, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon of humanity that being higher up has always been associated with significance, power, and success. And it didn't take long for humans to figure this out. Uh, By the 11th chapter of Genesis, you see it when uh, all of humanity bands together to build a tower with its top in the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Yeah. Probably the, uh, the next tallest building in history after the Tower of Babel was the Great Pyramid of Giza, which was the tallest building in the world for about 3,000 years, over 3,000 years, as far as we can tell. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai uh, has held the current title for the tallest building in the world uh, for the last 13 or so years, and there are plans in the works for buildings to make even taller ones, try and crack that one kilometer barrier. And of course, penthouses, the top floor in a hotel or an apartment building, you know, they are the most expensive apartments in the whole building often, and you know, they're often associated with the upper class. This one here in Darwin, which I'm, I believe has probably been on sale for about 10 years, uh, will set you back an easy $3.5 million on Gardner Street. And, you know, of course, unsurprisingly, we call people who occupy that level of society the upper class. Why do we know these things? Why is it that I mentioned Burj Khalifa? And I'm sure most of you have heard that name before. It's because height means something. And if you can claim the highest something, the tallest something, then that makes you someone important and successful, often. And the question of the text before us this morning is one of height and status. And more specifically, one of the height and status of God. And so I ask you this morning... As we approach the text, what floor does God occupy in your life? What floor does He live on in your life? In some ways, the question is kind of pointless, because if God really is God, then it doesn't matter what floor He occupies on your life. He owns your building. He owns the ground that it's built on. He owns the earth, the solar system, everything that is involved with it. Where you place him is is irrelevant to the reality of whether he actually is in the highest place or not. But the purpose of the question is to make you think about where you self-consciously place God in your life. Is he in the highest place? Does he occupy the penthouse? Or is he in the lower levels? As we come to God's Word, and as we examine our own hearts this morning, as we see God's truth revealed in His interactions with yet another wayward king, with yet another uh, one of His prophets' interactions and some of His messengers, let's come humbly before Him and before His Word with open ears and open hearts. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I I have two points for you. The first is altitude sickness. 
Uh, I suppose you could say that Ahaziah had uh, a form of altitude sickness, because he certainly ended up with a sickness which was in part due to altitude. Uh, After an introduction in verse 1 of our passage, which talks about Moab rebelling against Israel, and it is a story uh, arc that will be returned to in chapter 3 of 2 Kings, the narrative then shifts to then talk about Ahaziah, and it gives us this window into Ahaziah's life. He was in his upper chamber, which was likely a room on the second floor of his palace, and he fell through the lattice. And lattices uh, were put in windows back then because they didn't have glass windows in those days. And uh, lattices were there to give shade and protection from the winds. And so he fell out of a window on, at the very least, the, the second floor. And verse 2 tells us that he lay sick. And what, we, what he, the narrative means by that is that he lay he lay, uh, the injury was serious enough for him to be bedridden, for him to be probably not able to move. I mean, you can imagine that that would be the case if you fell out of a window on the first story or something like that, at the very least. But you know, not only this, uh, Ahaziah was so sick that he wasn't sure if he would survive. And so he wanted to consult a God in a foreign land about whether he was going to make it or not. But you know, this Ahaziah consulting this God, it's not the same thing as, as what we might do if we get sick, right? We might perhaps go to the hospital, get an MRI, and check to see whether, you know, that lump is a malignant tumor or not. But Ahaziah, he's, he's not after an estimate on how long he's going to live based on the data that he's got. Ahaziah, he, he wants to hear from whom he thinks has supernatural eyes to see the future. That's what he's consulting this God for. That's what he wants to know. He wants to consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, as to whether he could give him some divine information. Now, in case you're wondering, Baal Zebub is actually just uh, one letter different from the more commonly used name found in ancient Semitic texts, which is Baal Zebul. And the meaning of uh, that name, Baal Zebul, which we come across more often, is Prince Baal. He was, uh, that was often the name given to uh, one of the gods. The Pharisees actually use a Greek version of this name to refer to the devil in Jesus' day. And we see that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. You might be familiar with that, Baal Zebul. Now, there's a bit of debate here as to uh, what the author of Kings is actually doing here. Uh, some scholars think that uh, the reason that he's listed as Baalzebub here is because there is an intentional change of that name to, to make it go from a name that sounds quite lofty and, and high and impressive to one that sounds quite low and base and unimpressive, because when you change that one letter, the meaning goes from Prince Baal to Lord of the Flies. And so some scholars think there might be some legitimate uh, legitimacy to the actual name, and that there might actually be a god in Ekron whose name was, was Baalzebub. 
But others think that it's intentionally, the Bible is intentionally saying, you know, this God uh, that is supposed to be Prince Baal has actually been demoted to being Baal, the God of one of the most insignificant and annoying insects on the planet. I tend to think it's the latter, especially given what we're about to see. But whatever the case, the main point from this cannot be lost on the reader. Ahaziah has forgotten the God of Israel. He's choosing instead to worship at the feet of an idol who lives in one of the Philistines' smaller cities. Ekron's not even the capital. It would be like trying to find the local God of Darwin rather than Sydney or Melbourne or Perth, maybe. Ahaziah sends out his messages, and once again, we see yet another play on words here in verses 3 to 4. Let's read from there. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. In Hebrew, just like in Greek, the word for messenger is the same as the word for angel. And so we start to see here now the difference between the king of Israel and the king of kings. The high and mighty king of Israel, puffing himself up, thinking he is so great, sends his messengers to inquire of a God that he thought was also high and mighty. But the highest and the mightiest king comes along, sends his own messenger who delivers an actual true message that is authoritative through Elijah. Is it because there is No God in Israel that you would go and send these messages to try and find out what Baalzebub has to think about this? You can can hear the indignation and the offense of this in God's voice as he delivers this message. The point of that question is is rhetorical. It's not not like uh, the Lord is saying to Ahaziah, yeah, is is there no God in Israel or isn't there? No, he's clearly saying "There there is a God in Israel. There is no other God. And this is God's way of making it abundantly clear to Ahaziah that he has made a monumental mistake by forgetting about God and pretending that he doesn't exist. This is that moment when someone who has fled from the consequences of their choices and their actions in life suddenly comes face to face with them. And you know, this is the first time that these words are going to be spoken to Ahaziah, well, in our narrative, but it won't be the last. God pronounces his judgment on Ahaziah, declaring that the bed that he has gone up to, he won't come down from. Notice that Ahaziah has taken himself up. And God is saying that that in that high place that you have placed yourself, that's where you will remain. It is in that lofty bed 
that God's judgment will be carried out on him. Matthew Henry describes this like this. We have here Ahaziah, the wicked king of Israel, under God's rebuke, both by his providence and by his prophet, by his rod and by his word. You see what he's saying here? God's rebuke of Ahaziah is in him falling from his window. And it is also in the delivering of this message to him. In in the narrative, we don't see even a hint of repentance from Ahaziah. But surely, when this is what happens to him, that this is the message that's going to be delivered to him, surely this is the time when you would repent. But as we've already seen over the last few weeks, how patient and, and oh, sorry, we have already seen over the last few weeks how patient and ready to forgive God is to any to, who turn to him in humility. Were Ahaziah to do that, he would find a welcome reception of his repentance. But no. Ahaziah instead chooses to remain stubborn and proud. Friends, when you find yourself under the rebuke of God's rod and his word, how do you respond? Do you turn to the only one who can lift you out of that pit? Or do you let resentment for him grow? because of his sovereign hand on your life. As it's been said, sometimes God puts us on our backs so that we will look up. Don't just lie there waiting for God's judgment, which will surely come. Look up and receive mercy while it is still today. And while you still have breath in your lungs. So Elijah sets off to deliver the message. And here we have one of those moments like uh, in the movies where there's a cutscene, And it moves very abruptly. And suddenly just jumps forward in time. And so this is the narrative keeping the drama of the account moving. And we don't miss out on anything anyway because we've heard what God wants to Elijah to say. And so we assume that he goes and delivers that message to the messengers. And now we hear that the soldiers report back to Ahaziah what the Lord's messenger told him to say to them. Let's read from verse 5. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Ahaziah obviously figured that the messengers he'd sent out were back far too quickly. The some 20-kilometer journey south to Ekron and back to uh, wherever he was, Samaria, would have taken a lot longer than that. So he sees his soldiers, messengers come in and says, what's going on, fellas? 
And of course, the messengers who were originally delivering a message to the Lord of the Flies on behalf of the King of Israel is now returning, they are now returning with a message on behalf of the Lord of Lords. See, there's only one real Lord in this story. Ahaziah, perhaps having been told by his dad, Ahab, about the prophet that gave him so much trouble, he, uh, he gets curious. What kind of man? Tell me about this guy. What did he look like? Of course, the description confirms Ahaziah's suspicions. The garment of hair and the belt of leather, those two telltale signs can only mean one guy. Elijah the Tishbite. If that description uh, sounds familiar to you, it's probably because about 800 years later, another prophet would be described with the same two telltale wardrobe features. John the Baptist would have the same trademark outfit. And John the Baptist would even be described by Jesus as the Elijah who was to come. He would be the one that Malachi prophesied about after Elijah's death in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, when he said, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah would be sent. And yet there's something here that we need to grasp. We, we see this kind of parallel going on, this fulfillment in, in John the Baptist of Elijah. And yet in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says that of all people, there's no one up to that point greater than JTB. Of all the prophets before Jesus, he's saying John the Baptist, he is the greatest Greater even than Elijah and Moses. And yet, what does he go on to say? What does he say? That the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than him. How? How could that be, how could that be possibly true? How, how could it be true at all that, that these guys, these prophets who spoke to God directly, who performed great and incredible and awesome signs before so many people, who, who achieved incredible feats, how could these magnificent, incredible prophets be considered less than even the least in the kingdom of heaven? How? Because those in the kingdom, those who have entered into it through faith in Jesus, now see fully what the prophets of old only saw in shadows. For every person who has seen Jesus and who has now turned to him in repentance and in faith, we live on the other side of the beginning of Christ's kingdom. We live in this period of after the coming of God's promised Messiah. And this is so crucial for us to grasp because it is, it's just tempting to look back at these old prophets, to look at the many signs and the many wonders that they performed and to think to ourselves, you know, I can't call down fire on people. I mean, I, sometimes I wish I could do some, that, but I, but I can't do it. How could I possibly consider gr greater than Elijah? 
Yeah, it's interesting, in Luke 9, 54 to 55, James and John, Jesus' disciples, thought they must have been pretty special. And so they thought, hey, let's call down fire on these people that we want to rebuke. And Jesus actually rebuked them for it. And perhaps it's not surprising that immediately after this, Jesus goes on to talk about the great cost of following Him. (laughs) Following Him is not about elevating your status. It's about humble submission. So easily we see our lack of supernatural superpowers as something that puts us lower on this hierarchy of spiritual greatness. And yet, Jesus says, even the least of these in my kingdom is greater. Why? Because they can testify about me. Christian, you are entrusted with the message that Jesus wants the whole world to hear. A message that is even more powerful than calling down fire from heaven. A message that has the power to bring dead souls to life. Do you ever feel like your life isn't amounting to much? Do you ever feel like that, you know, you're just, you're just an average Joe and that you could never do something great for God? Take heart. Take courage. God delights in using the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary in His plan of salvation. He loves to shame the strong with the weak. He, he takes joy in performing spiritual miracles through people who can't perform miracles. That is a great honor that surpasses even speaking prophetic words to kings as Elijah did. As a 19th century evangelist, D.L. Moody said, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do little things. Brothers and sisters, you sharing the gospel with your neighbor, sharing the gospel with your family members, or with your longtime friends, that is of enormous significance in the kingdom of heaven. Don't ever forget that. Well, let's get back to Ahaziah. He evidently doesn't like the message that the Lord has given him, and so he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. Let's read verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Ahaziah sends a captain and a company of soldiers to try and bring Elijah down. Literally, down, because he is sitting at the top of a mountain. And the captain, he goes up to Elijah, tells him, come down. Now, if it weren't for the rest of the story, we might think to ourselves that, hey, this is a pretty reasonable request, right? I mean, we, you know, I have police officer friends, they expect people to listen when they tell them what to do. 
I mean, the captain's just doing his job, right? Why would such a simple request really warrant such a dramatic response from Elijah? When I was helping out with a a local middle school program here in Darwin a few years ago, I had a teacher come up to me and ask about this very passage. He said, how could this possibly be fair? I thought God was supposed to be loving. You guys talk about how He's a loving God. Why would He burn up 50 innocent men just doing their job? And you know, if they were innocent men just doing their job, then I'd agree. This is unloving and unfair. But we have at least two reasons to believe that this isn't the case. Firstly, as we've seen in preaching through 1 Kings, the kings of Israel have been spiraling down into worse and worse wickedness. Not only have they done that themselves, they've led the entire nation to do the same. We saw that a couple of weeks ago when we saw the Lord's pronouncement of judgment on Ahab for his sin in 1 Kings 21:22. He says, "Because you have made Israel to sin." And so we have every reason to believe that the nation followed their wicked king into his wickedness. And secondly, the text actually hints at the fact that these men and his captain weren't as innocent as perhaps you might think. Let's read verse 10. But Elijah answered, the captain of 50, If I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Do you notice Elijah's response? If I am a man of God. His response here, I think, exposes the fact that the captain, he was not calling Elijah a man of God out of reverence or respect for him. He didn't mean that title when he said it. He was simply using it because, hey, that's what you call the supposed link, man of God, you know. No, instead the captain came to Elijah thinking that he could command Elijah around on the king's authority. That the king was higher. Despite the fact that he was coming up to Elijah, he believed that the king was higher and that the king could bring him down. The second captain was the same, and he tries to make the point even more strongly in verse 11. This is the king's order. Come down quickly. You notice that there's, you know, maybe he was a little bit nervous about the last few guys, but clearly that hasn't changed anything. He just tries to be firmer. There's no humility there. The uh, NRSV and the NET actually translate this verse as, he went up instead of, he answered. There's a little textual point here, and I think uh, the NRSV has actually done so correctly because it is consistent with what we see all of the captains doing. It's, It's making that contrast, that parallel, these captains and their men going up and trying to call Elijah down. So do you see what's happening here? The king, his captains, these men, they all have... Altitude sickness. They all have a heart sickness. 
that causes them to think of themselves more highly than they ought to. They have elevated themselves above God and his prophet. In the king's tower, in the captain's tower, in these men's towers, they live on the top floor. In their pride, they have ignored God's word and they have thought that they could command him around from a higher place. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. This is true altitude sickness. And whether consciously or subconsciously, it is the placing of yourself or any number of other false gods and idols above the true God. It's a sickness that has plagued humanity since the fall. And it's a sickness that continues to plague us today. We saw it in the Tower of Babel. And we see it when people think that they can tell God what He should be like. That they can tell God what He should be doing. When they think that they can tell God how He should be revealing Himself to us. Well, the grand irony is that those who fancy themselves to be higher than him are met with that reality check. Both companies consumed by fire. Coming down from where? Down from heaven. God's judgment rains down from the highest throne in the cosmos. Both captains and companies, along with all people throughout history, no matter how high they might ascend in life, no matter how much they might fancy themselves to be high and lifted up, will one day realize that judgment still comes from above. You know, for God's people, that is actually of great comfort. That fire of judgment will once again rain down on Satan and his minions at the end of time, even as he tries to take down God's church, as Revelation 20 verse 9 tells us. And at that time, God will finally bring judgment on all his enemies. The reality is that whether you place God in the highest place of your life or not, He lives there. He is in the highest place. And yet altitude sickness affects us all. Do you recognize the symptoms? Do you notice when you are starting to experience that? It begins with a grumble about life. A thought that maybe God doesn't know what He's doing. 
Maybe he isn't in control. And it grows into a frustration about the way things are. God, is it too much to ask for you to give me these things that I ask for? Even when I ask for good things, things that you've told me to ask for, like the salvation of friends and family or the fruit of the Spirit in my life, or to live a life of sacrificial devotion, of sanctification, why do you continue to block the way and put me in situations that just don't make any sense? And if left untreated, it climaxes in full-blown pride. Well, God, clearly you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to have to just make my own way without you. If you're not going to give me what I want, what's the point of worshipping you? I'll just have to go out and get mine. Sadly, history is littered with the charred remains of those who decided that even if the God of Israel really is God, they don't want to take up, they don't want him to take up residence in their penthouse. That top floor is reserved for me. Friends, treat altitude sickness early. As soon as you see the symptoms and treat it as though your life depended on it. Because it does. Treat it by breathing deeply the, the life-giving oxygen of God's truth in His Word by His Spirit. And how? How do we do that? How do we treat it? Well, our third captain shows us the way, which brings me to my second point. The way up is down. Let's see how the third captain recognizes the foolish pride of those who went before him and how he responds in verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. You see, when this captain calls Elijah the man of God, he, he's not saying it just because that's what the other guy said. He's not saying it just because he's wanting to be polite. No, he recognized that Elijah really is what this title describes. And he knows that Elijah speaks on behalf of God and that God is the one who brought judgment on these proud captains. And that he is also the one who has pronounced judgment on the proud king. And how does the captain respond? With humility. He comes up to Elijah at the top of the hill, and instead of telling Elijah to come down, he falls down before him and pleads with him for mercy. Let my life and the lives of these men be precious in your sight. That phrase, if you're familiar with it, is used to refer to the value of a life 
to keep it alive. We see an example of this in 1 Samuel 26, 24, when David spares Saul's life, even though he had the opportunity to take it. You see, this captain has realized that the Lord speaks and acts through Elijah. That's why he recounted to him what what happened to all the other captains. And he understands now that that trying to strong-arm God into getting what he wants is about as smart as a chihuahua taking on a tiger. Have you heard the Lord speak? He speaks to you in His Word, in the Bible. Do you sit under it? Are you ready for it to penetrate your soul, to transform your mind and to renew your heart? My friend, don't wait till tomorrow to hear God's Word and to respond to it. Don't wait for another time. Don't wait until judgment has fallen on your friends and your family and your co-workers to humble yourself before Him and to surrender your life to Him. Because God will always respond to that humble submission just as He did to this humble captain. Let's read verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Elijah, he goes down with the captain. The Lord spares the captain's life. And Elijah delivers the exact same message that we have already heard twice now to Ahaziah directly. The way up is down. As I've reflected on many interactions with different people in my life, and I've, as I've continued to think about and to, and to explore and consider my own faith, I've come to realize something. You see, for the vast majority of my Christian life, I've always found uh, evangelism to be uh, terrifying. And I have found that I, I, or at least I've always thought that I was just terrible at it and therefore didn't really bother to engage uh, as much. I certainly tried. I knew that it was important. And I'm still, you know, not amazing at it. But a very significant shift occurred in me when I realized that my problem was that I'd been trying to get people to accept Christ, thinking that all I needed to do was to get them to change their thinking. I thought that if I could just convince people of of something, maybe it's the, the historicity of Jesus, or perhaps the goodness of God, or perhaps the moral framework that Christianity gives, you know, or perhaps the, the, the meaning of life that, that comes with knowing Christ, or whatever it was, I thought that if I could just get someone to see that life with Jesus is better, or that it makes more sense, or that it is true, then of course they would want to follow Him. Why would you not want that? Now, don't get me wrong, all of those things are true, if you're wondering. Life is better. It makes more sense. It has purpose. And living in truth is wonderful in Christ. But it misses something vital about the Christian life. Something vital about both when it begins and as it continues. 
which is, of course, that following Christ is not just about changing your mind about Jesus. It's not just about exchanging a set of beliefs, a worldview that perhaps you might have, and and transferring it over to this Christian one. It's not just just saying, well, I used to believe that there was a blind watchmaker, and now I believe that he's not blind. Following Christ is a life of initial and continuous, humble surrender. You say life of initial and the very first step that you take in walking with Christ and on and on as you continue throughout life, continuous, humble surrender. That's because it is a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith looks like this third captain. It looks like falling at the feet of God, recognizing that your sin deserves fiery judgment and pleading with Him for mercy from the only one who can give it to you. Looking to Him alone for salvation, not to yourself, not to other false gods. That is the only route to freedom, to salvation, and to glory for any of us. If you're here this morning, and if you haven't yet humbled yourself before God, He is calling you today to do so. On a hill called Golgotha, centuries after Elijah, not just a man of God, but the very Son of God would be raised up on the top of that hill. And He wouldn't be raised in glory, but He would be raised in humiliation. He would be put up on a Roman cross, completely naked, mocked and overpowered by Roman soldiers because of accusations from the Jews. And on that cross, he would receive the fiery judgment of God. Not judgment that he deserved because he was innocent. Not judgment that he received against his will. But he bore the flames of God's wrath because he knew that his chastisement would bring us peace. Friends, do you realize that God sits enthroned above all creation and that what you deserve? fire from above? But do you also realize that when you fall before Him in humble recognition of your pride and of your sin, that by placing your trust in Jesus and in surrendering to Him, you will be saved? God is merciful. He will never turn away those who humble themselves before Him. Psalm 51, 17 says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The way up is down. Because not only does the Lord promise salvation from sin and the sparing of His judgment, but He also raises you to new life in Him and seats you with Him, as Ephesians 2.6 says. 
And he says that because the raising of Jesus on a Roman cross on a hill outside Jerusalem wasn't Jesus' final raising. Praise God for that. Three days later, he would rise from the grave. And 40 days later, he would ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. To follow Christ is to be paradoxically raised to life by burying your own. That's why the symbol of baptism is the initiating sign into the Christian faith. As Colossians 2.12 makes clear, it represents how a follower of Christ has surrendered their life to Him. Unlike the way that seems instinctive to us, unlike the way that seems to be declared by the world around us, the way up the mountain of glory is down. The way up to sharing in Christ's eternal glory is through humble surrender to Him. That's counterintuitive. That's foolishness to the world. That's the gospel. And it's the reason why humility became a virtue instead of something to be scorned in the West. It's the reason why scores of Christians throughout history have willingly given and continue to give their lives to Him in ways that make no sense to the watching world. And they continue to because they know that they deserve judgment from heaven, but instead they have received mercy. What floor does God live on in your life? Even for those of us who have lived as Christians for many years, in what ways do you take up residence on the top floor where only God should be? How do you Tell him what he should be like. I'll give you one example that I'm sure all of us can relate to. Prayerlessness. A lack of prayer is a symptom of thinking that we don't need God in order to do things for him. I'm challenged by this every day. I mean, it's, you think about it, it's just so much easier in our world where so many things are, are so sorted out and we, and we have so much control over what we can do and what we want. It's so easy to be lulled into a sense of thinking that, it's okay, God, you don't need to interfere here, I've got this. You know, interestingly, I was reminded of this when I realized that last week, as I was giving us pointers about how we can discern God's truth from the Bible together, I don't know if anybody noticed, but I completely left out the essential step of prayer. How, how could I have done that? You know, we, we can't even understand God's Word without His Spirit lighting it up for us. And I'd actually planned to mention that, and then it slipped my mind and I forgot. How easily we forget. As some have said, that a Christian who doesn't pray is like a person who doesn't breathe. Breathe. 
A lack of prayer is an indicator that we think that we can do everything we need to do without the Lord's help. Do you consciously or or subconsciously elevate yourself above God by not bringing everything to Him in prayer? Another offshoot of this is prayer that doesn't actually lean on the sovereignty of God. Prayer that is shocked when when our prayers aren't answered the way that we expect or the way that we would want God to answer. We're surprised and then perhaps we're a little bit indignant, a little bit annoyed. Are you leaning on Him? Are you trusting in His sovereign goodness when you pray? Do you know that this is the means that God has ordained to bring about His will? And that as you lean into it, you begin to trust and know Him more. And of course, the extreme version of this, and almost the direct analogy of what we see in our passage, is the false teaching that you can basically command God to do what you want as long as you have enough faith. That is a lie, based on the same lies that Ahaziah and his two captains believed. Are you willing to name such lies for what they really are? Are you willing in charity and in love when you have the opportunity to speak to others who have become beholden and captive to this false doctrine? Brothers and sisters, let us resist the temptation of sounding humble before God but functionally elevating ourselves above Him by failing to pray, by not trusting that He is sovereign in our prayers, or by encouraging or tolerating a lie that, can, that we can command God around. The Lord must live on the top floor of your life. Ahaziah, he ultimately decided that regardless of the number of times the Lord pronounced His judgment on him. He would not bow the knee. And so as we read verse 17, in in verse 17, the word of the Lord comes true. As it always does. Just as He said it would. Ahaziah remained stubborn and proud Even though he was rebuked by God's rod and word, he covered his ears and he closed off his heart. And he becomes yet another king whose book is closed, who has a few more lines written about him in the book of Chronicles in the Bible. He maybe has some other stuff written about him in other books outside of that. But he will ultimately be remembered as one who never yielded to the Lord in humility. For every person who remains stubborn and proud before God, what awaits them from heaven is fiery judgment. But for every person who falls before Him in humility, what awaits them from heaven is not only mercy, but reward. 
Jesus will come again for his people, as 1 Thessalonians 4.16 reminds us. He will descend from heaven and gather up his church. And all who have humbly surrendered to him will rise to eternal life with Christ. Friends, there is no higher life. There is no higher calling than to walk humbly before God throughout your earthly days and to dwell with Him for all eternity. The way up is down. I just love the uh, irony of Genesis 11. Here is all of humanity wanting to build a global city that has a tower that reaches the heavens, wanting to make a name for themselves. And God has to come down to see it. God lives in the highest place. The question is whether you will acknowledge that, recognize that, and humble yourself and live in accordance with that. One of the songs that uh, I remember hearing a lot growing up was one called Highest Place by Ron Cannoli. And as we finish this morning... I'm going to sing it for us. If you know it, please feel free to join in. But whether you sing or not, consider all that we have heard from this passage and ask the question in your own life, do I place Jesus in the highest place? And if not, or in areas where I don't, Lord, I humble myself before you. Once I finish, Roger will come up and lead us in prayer.